This week on Opera Innovations, we introduce our new series, ABA Technologies Thought Leaders. Throughout this series, we will be hearing from the amazing minds behind ABA Technologies, how they got into the field, what is ABA Tech, and where are we going. On this episode, we get to sit down with Dr. Jose Martinez-Diaz to hear all about his journey into the field. All right, okay. so we're going to go ahead and get started with our Operant Innovations podcast today. So, of course, this is brought to us by ABA Technologies, and we have the pleasure as the professional development team with uh, Dr. Allison King, Shauna Costello, and Kelly Therian to be interviewing the founder of ABA Technologies, Dr. Jose Martinez-Diaz. So, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for doing this and having me. Uh, I hope that I can... Do well. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm sure you will. We've got just a couple of questions for you. We just know that um, you know so many people want to hear more about you and about your history and how you came to be who you are and the icon that you are in the field. So if we could just start, can you tell us some about your history, sort of how you came into the field of behavior analysis, uh, some of your educational background, and just sort of that path? Yeah, well, I can talk uh, over an hour just on that, but uh, some people have heard my story of a loco and how when I was about seven years old in Cuba that I and that my mother told me that the reason I couldn't go outside the gates of our house out into the street was because there was a loco in the neighborhood the loco next door I called him was actually about a block away because we lived in a, in a several acres but it, I was uh, she was worried that he would escape and then that he would hurt me, and because he had hurt my uncle, her brother, when uh, when my uncle was a, a teenager, uh, and he, and I asked about this local, and they said that he had been my uncle's friend. They had uh, gone to school together and all, but one day he uh, he got violent and and uh, and tried to strangle my my uncle, and that. After that, the the parents locked him up in the attic, and that they hoped that that's, she hoped that that's where he still was, so he couldn't hurt anybody else, which totally, 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 hurt me. And for my mother to be saying that, also hurt me because my mother, I wouldn't think would have wished anything like that on anybody, but I felt like I can't. I have several acres to run around. In, 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 in where I live but I want to go out on the street and I can't go out on the street but this this man has been locked up in the attic and not able to go anywhere for decades because this was when he was a teenager and I knew my uncle was in his 40s so and my goodness, I just felt very bad for the man. So I asked my mother, isn't there any way to help him? And he said, there's Masorra. And Masorra was the local lunatic asylum. And you can imagine uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and some of those movies and books about asylums. I can, I've watched many of them and a lot of them are, are like true. That's the way things were, and perhaps in places they still are, unfortunately. 
and uh, of course I didn't help him there. And I said, Is, are there any people who can help people like this who are crazy? And she said, well, there's psychiatrist. That's all she knew, psychiatrist. And nothing about psychologist, but she said psychiatrist. And I said, well, is there, uh, are there any psychiatrists here in Cienfuegos? And she said that there had been one and he wasn't able to help him at all. And that, uh, and I said, oh, I want to meet him. I want to talk to him, see how, how he helps people that are crazy. And she said, well, uh, and he's uh, actually uh, Saturnino's dad. Saturnino is a was one of my classmates at the time, and and I said, oh yes, so I'd like to meet him. Maybe I can go visit Saturnino. And she said, no, he's not alive anymore. And I said, oh, he died, and what happened? He must not be that old. And he said, he killed himself. And that's how I found out about suicide, and that people actually killed themselves. And I felt really bad about that too. And then I found here's somebody who helps crazy people and here's somebody who actually is, knows how to help people and he does something crazy because I thought killing yourself sounded like the craziest thing there was. And I said, ah, and I went uh, up to uh, my room and, and I, right next to my room was the, the library for the house and I started looking up and we had an encyclopedia Britannica translated into Spanish and, and I looked up psychiatry, I looked up then psychology and I read all the stuff that didn't make any sense and, and it really didn't make any sense to me whatsoever that any of this could help people <laughs> but I didn't give up so I started, uh, but I, I sort of put it on the back burner until I got to high school. And then I took, as soon as I got to high school, I took a, a psychology class, uh, even though it wasn't part of my program. I took it as an extra class that I didn't have to take over the summer. And, uh, and I read about Freud, and that didn't make any sense to me uh, either. And... Uh, and I says, wow, I don't know if there's any way to help these people. But I was fortunate enough that I didn't give it up because I went to the University of Miami and majored in psychology. And I figured maybe it's not psychiatrists who can help people, maybe it's psychologists. And, uh, and, and I started learning and I was fortunate enough that my first advisor and was behavioral, Fred Newman, and, and he, I was in the honors program, so I got to spend a lot of time with my advisor. Uh, and and he's the, my first exposure to behavior analysis was from him. And also, I learned about the work of Fred Keller before I even learned about the work of B.F. Skinner. Uh, because I, uh, Fred Newman uh, used Fred Keller's approach to teaching. And he, uh, he had uh, the class I took from him in the summer after my freshman year was set up as a PSI class, a personalized system of instruction. And he said, this is a behavioral way of teaching. 
And I took that class and I finished it in like three weeks and I got an A. And then I had the rest of the summer in which I didn't have to take the class and I thought, this is wonderful. <laughs> I finished my, my whole class I was supposed to take all summer in three weeks and I didn't get bored. And, and I felt really good about myself have, having learned this stuff fast and well. And then he said, hey, you should be a, a tutor for the other students and uh, I can pay you as a tutor. You did so well. And then he actually had me be a tutor in the fall and the spring of the following year. And, uh, and he taught me a lot about the PSI method and how to teach from a behavioral perspective. Uh, and in fact, even though that was not clinical psychology, which is what I thought I was interested in helping crazy people, my first exposure was to an educational, a behavioral approach to education, which is what eventually I wound up doing after I transitioned from clinical psychology to, to education instead, <laughs> which uh, is, I, I don't know, I can go a couple of ways here now because I can talk about then how I made that transition or I can talk about then how I still pursued my dream of helping crazy people but because essentially I did both, mm -hmm. but different experiences led me to different things. So I guess I'll go historically in terms of the order of time events, lines. Yeah. timeline, helpful, timeline, the timeline. And in terms of the timeline was, I was still interested in helping crazy people. I was interested in teaching people, but I was also interested in helping crazy people. And I say crazy and because that's what, the the term that was used back in those days, a, a term like the the it's like you know over the years and decades, uh, certain words become bad words like curse words, <laughs> like uh, like uh, mentally retarded used to be a, a an acceptable term, and then this developmentally disabled was a term, and then the uh, then that was a bad term too and oh my goodness the language just changes uh, and, and, and you can't say certain things anymore that you used to say <laughs> but the, the uh, I wanted to help people that heard voices and people that, that said things that didn't make any sense <laughs> and so forth. They were very interesting to me, but I also wanted to help them. So uh, I started working at the at local mental hospitals. First, I worked at Jackson Memorial Hospital while an undergraduate as a psychiatric attendant, and I saw awful things happening there. What I saw was people being put in straight jackets, people being held down on the ground, face down, with people holding them down and then a nurse coming over with a big needle and then giving them a shot and even chloral hydrate it smelled awful and it sunk them out and they were uh, taken and given electric shock treatments and they came out like zombies and when i remember trying to talk to them afterwards and even the day after, 
they didn't remember things that we had talked about the day before and it was like they didn't remember me anymore and I thought this can't be good this can't be good and I th and the head nurse there told me I shouldn't be talking to them anyway that my job was to empty bedpans and take care of their physical needs that there were people there to help them and I made the mistake of telling her you really are helping them looks like you're hurting them I got fired Anyway, that was my first experience in working in a psychiatric hospital. I got fired, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm glad I got fired because I couldn't have stood another day in that place. So then I went to work at a Variety's Children's Hospital, but there was a unit there. The psychiatric unit was run by uh, people that were not did not own varieties. It was a, a company that rented a whole floor of that hospital. Montanary Clinical Schools, they were called because they started out as schools and then they expanded into having other kinds of programs, residential programs and psychiatry. Later on they were exposed in 60 minutes and I was glad because that was another crazy place. The people who were in those places were less crazy than the people who ran those places is what I found. But by the way, by this time I had found out that behavior analysis could not only help in teaching, but could help people with a what I would call clinical pro pro uh, problems. And I call them clinical because uh, it's clinicians who work with them, <laughs> right? And it's clinical psychology specializes in helping people that are giving diagnosis by either a psychologist or by a psychiatrist from some other clinician, right? That can give a diagnosis. But I learned I, what I, I, in my sophomore year, I took a class in, in learning and uh, the principles of learning from a behavioral guy who was, a, a, later on I found out that what he had learned was the experimental analysis of behavior. So we read Reynolds' uh, principles uh, a primer of operant conditioning, and we read uh, uh, Skinner's Science and Human Behavior, and then and we read a bunch of articles, and uh, and then and 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 then uh, the, we had a, a, a rat lab, and I took a, a second class learning too from from him also, and then we even learned more stuff, and then we even learned about behavior modification. One of the books was a behavior. Uh, a, a, a behavior mod textbook from the time. <laughs> was this all at the University of Miami? That was all at the University of Miami. Wow. We had behavioral faculty there at the time. In fact, my good friend Joe Wyatt that went up going into his PhD program at West Virginia was getting his master's there in experimental analysis of behavior. Of course, it was called experimental psychology, hmm. but it was behavioral, so it was the experimental analysis of behavior and we had we had the operant laboratories with the Skinner chambers, the operant chambers there, and and all that. So we learned all that at the University of Miami. I came out trained in in the experimental analysis of behavior, and That's not to the, not as a graduate student level, but as an undergraduate. No, I don't think it's that way anymore there because a lot of schools when cognitive and the psychology department when cognitive starting in the mid 70s but 
later on. I went to school in the six, in college in the 60s and early 70s <laughs> before the cognitive revolution took over. <laughs> well, it's amazing how much you were able to do even in an undergraduate program to have exposure to so many different things and to just the breadth of it sounds like was really impressive. Oh, well, yeah, well, there were several factors. Not only is the University of Miami really good, it's still really good. The faculty were top-notch. But the other thing is I, I was uh, fortunate enough to qualify for not only the uh, honors program, but some, something called privileged studies. It's where you came in and, and they waived all your prerequisites because of your test scores. And, and, and you can work closely with your faculty advisor to design your own curriculum uh, to suit what you wanted to do without having to take all the stuff like, mm -hmm. oh, you have to take so many social sciences, so much history, so much this, so much that. I didn't, I, I, I knew all that stuff already coming into college. <laughs> I, well, I had, I had, I read voraciously all through my life from the time I was a little kid, I just read and read. So when they tested me, it seemed like I knew about all the all the basic subjects. I knew science, I knew liberal arts, I, I knew all that stuff already. So I just, and then I met, I spent a lot of time with my advisor, first Fred Newman, and then the the second man was, was called Bob Jones. Uh, his real name was Marshall Robert Jones, but he went by Bob, and uh, and he said, "I'm I'm not a, a died in the wolf behaviorist, but I'm an empiricist, and the behavioral approach has the most empirical support." Hmm. That's what he told me. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 he's and he said, "Maybe one of these days we'll discover there's something better." But now. That's what the research shows. And, and, and then he showed me how there were clinical applications. So, for example, when I was working at Varieties uh, at, at Montanary uh, Clinical Schools, I, ha I had a boy with autism there that uh, uh, he, he was uh, there and he was engaging in self-injury. That's the first time I saw self-injury and how they restrained him and gave him in five-point restraints to a bed most of his time and they also gave him lots of shots and put him in straitjackets and so forth and I thought it was cruel and inhumane but they said that there was nothing else they could do for him but keep him safe and then Bob, when I talked to Bob Jones about that he gave me articles by Ivar Lovas to read and by Todd Risley from the early days because Todd Risley had done work while they, uh, uh, on that as well and some of the other folks and, and uh, they, I read this stuff and says, we can help them. So again, I go up to the, to the uh, clinical director there who was kind of in charge of uh, uh, treatment. And I talked to him. He was a licensed clinical social worker. And I told him all about this. So here's how we can help this kid. This is uh, what I've learned. And... Uh, brought him some articles and, and he said, well, I'm the clinical director, but I'm not in charge of treatment, the psychiatrist is. She signs off on all the treatment plans here. Uh, this is a medical facility, this is a hospital, not, not, 
not an outpatient clinic. You have to talk to the psychiatrist. <laughs> and I talked, so I set up an appointment to talk to her. And I talked to her and she says, maybe you don't need to work here. And I get fired again. So anyway, I, I wanted to help people. These people weren't helping people. I was getting exposed to all this bad stuff. I was trying, I was learning all the good stuff at the University of Miami. I was trying to bring it back and, and, and tell the people in the places that I was working about it. And I was getting fired for it. So I already knew that I had to, uh, that I was going to get my PhD ever since I started at the University of Miami. Uh, uh, everybody told me, all the faculty, all my advisors told me, you know, you need to get your PhD. You need to get your PhD. That uh, you can't stop. Anyway, so I was PhD bound, but the experiences of getting fired, I said, I can't be working as an underling. I have to be in charge of treatment. <laughs> I have to get my PhD. <laughs> and good for you not to get discouraged by the firings and think to try find a different path that you were coming up against this resistance and not being able to make a difference. Oh, to keep trying. Oh, keep not only that, the last time I got fired, I started ABA technology <laughs> because I kept getting fired uh, uh, and, uh, for decades after that. I'll have to tell you some of those stories some other time, <laughs> because really, I have never, ever, ever not fought for what's right and for the client's best interest. And that is not always what the people who are in charge are all about. They're about something else. And the contingencies in place operating on their behavior are counterproductive in terms of let's do what's good for the people we are helping. And, and there's financial contingencies and there are other types of contingencies. I won't get into them now. That's for another time. But what happens is somebody like myself comes in and starts rocking the boat and saying, you're not doing this right. We need to do this for people and we need to do this right. And then they, so if, you, if you're not the boss, <laughs> they get rid of you. Mm. And hey, but I've always been able to find something else to do. I've never been unemployed for long. And I've always had two jobs anyway. I've never had just one job, I don't think. <laughs> Even when I was a paper boy, I had a, another job. Uh, back in when I was 13 years old. <laughs> so anyway, so the, uh, so the thing is that at the University of Miami is where I learned about behavior analysis, where I got exposed to Fred Keller first, then B.F. Skinner and operant conditioning, as it was called back then. Now it's called operant selection. Uh, for those of you who are still calling operant conditioning, <laughs> But anyway, the, uh, the, the thing is that then I got advised to go to, the, to West Virginia University for my PhD by Bob Jones. And that was the best advice I'd ever gotten. And, and, the, the, and this is why he gave me that advice. He said, look, there's only a, f a few schools in the country where you can learn applied 
behavior analysis, behavior mod, to really help people, and that's what you want to do. There's a lot of really, really good programs in the experimental analysis of behavior, but you want to be a professional, you want to be a clinician, you don't want to be in the laboratory working with rats and pigeons, do you? Because he knew me, I wanted to help people. So you would have a much bigger choice if you just wanted to study, go into an experimental psychology program and learn more about working, uh, uh, doing experiments with rats and pigeons, plenty of those. But for behavior mod, you need to go to one of these programs. Now the programs are Western Michigan, who already had a great reputation, but they only have a master's program. At the time, they only did. Later on, they had their PhD program. And, and you can't do much with a master's. That was, of course, before board certification and licensing for behavior analysts. It was true. You could practice as a licensed psychologist, and there were not clinical social work programs that were behavioral. There were no mental health counseling programs that were behavioral. It was all uh, clinical stuff, clinical psych stuff, psychology programs. But anyway, and he said, you can go to Kansas, but that's a program that's really human development and you won't, and you can get your PhD there and come out with a lot of good stuff, but you won't be able to be a licensed psychologist. And then you'll have to work at a state institution all your life or work for the government or something. But I know you, <laughs> you don't want to work for people. <laughs> you want to work for yourself <laughs> and you also want to make some money because uh, I know, you, and we shared, I've been to his house. He had a nice house. He had a nice practice on the side. He was not a poor man. And he said, you know, you know how I live. You want to live like me, right? He said, yeah. Well, you, <laughs> you need to get licensed to do that. <laughs> so I said, yeah, well, you know, I like helping people, but I also like making money. <laughs> but anyway, the, uh, and, and then, he went over all the different programs, SIU, well, that's a rehab program. Again, you can't be licensed and so forth. The only place where you can get your PhD in clinical psychology and get, and get licensed and still learn behavior analysis, behavior mod is West Virginia University. And at the time that was true. So off I went, country roads, Take me home to the place I belong, <laughs> West Virginia. No mountain mama though. <laughs> Alrighty. So off I went to West Virginia and I never regret it. I, I had a, a, such a wonderful time there. I stayed five years before then I went off to do my internship. I did do my dissertation work after I left because I uh, spent so much time doing other things in grad school and learning so much that I never had time to do my dissertation in the five years I was there. So I did my dissertation uh, when I, I left on my, my internship was at, at the clinical research unit for the study of schizophrenia at, at Camarillo State Hospital, but it was by a UCLA staff with a, a UCLA research prof, uh, professor, professors and and the uh, and the psychiatrist was was a, a UCLA uh, research professor, 
he only came one day a week, but he was uh, uh, at UCLA the rest of the time uh, over in the main campus. Uh, the psychologists were UCLA faculty and had their PhDs from UCLA and, uh, and, and so forth and had trained with Lobas, uh, some of them and so forth. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and that's where I did my internship and then I wound up doing my dissertation at the clinical research unit also. But at the time that I was there, I also did a rotation at the, out, uh, uh, it was called the Autistic Children's Research Unit. <laughs> And that was also started by UCLA people, by Ivar Lovas and some other folks from UCLA. And uh, so that's, so I was at a state institution, but I was more like a, a university research centers there that I, that, I, that I was working. And that's where I stayed working at both places uh, because I wanted to still work with Los Locos. <laughs> The people with schizophrenia, <laughs> diagnosis of schizophrenia, I enjoyed that so much. But I also worked in the uh, in the uh, autism children's unit, and I stayed there for ten years, working and learning more, and and feeling like I was really really helping people. And at last, I was happy, and nobody tried to fire me <laughs> while I was there, and I, and and I wasn't the boss, but my boss. In system both places in the in the autism unit, uh, the director of the autism program there was Izzy Perel, who had trained as a behavior analyst. Uh, he had his PhD, also, and he he, he loved that I, that I was a formally trained behavior analyst because most of the psychologists they hired, and that's what they hired at the time psychologists, not behavior analysts, because there was no such thing as a separate thing that you could jobs for behavior analysts that didn't exist back in those days we're talking about the late 70s and early 80s here <laughs> the the, uh, the the uh again they hired us a psychologist licensed psychologist okay and then the, my boss was uh, also a psychologist but behavioral and and he was also into doing the best to help people and we got along for and, and worked together for a long time. And then in the clinical research unit, it was Steve Wong, who by, had trained at Western Michigan, and he was not license eligible. <laughs> by then, they had a PhD program. Uh, he had to retread in some clinical stuff to become licensed. Uh, but for being a UCLA research professor, he didn't have to be licensed. <laughs> but anyway, so... Uh, in fact, I don't think he ever got licensed in California because as a research professor, he didn't have to be and what he was doing was research and <laughs> not clinical practice. The psychiatrist was signing up on the, on the clinical practice stuff. <laughs> but anyway, it was interesting times, but I learned a lot. And, uh, and, and I've always said that between the University of Miami, Western University, and then the UCLA Camarillo experienced uh, for 10 years so it was a total of 19 years of getting ready to make a difference hmm. and i was making a difference but i felt like it was time to do more and then i left uh, when i was uh, by then i was 37 years old and i can tell you that part of the story some other time <laughs>
Thank you for joining us on Opera Innovations. Stay tuned for more from Dr. Jose Martinez-Diaz, Tom Freeman, Darnell Latal, and more. If you have feedback or suggestions, please contact us at operainnovations at abatechnologies.com. <laughs>